Well, today, in God's providence, um, our nation's Independence Day falls on the Lord's Day. And as we continue on in our 10th week in the book of Philippians, where we again meet the Apostle Paul bound in Roman chains for preaching the gospel, this juxtaposition helps us appreciate just how blessed we are on this Lord's Day, 2,000 years later. Even with the increase in censorship and hostility towards a biblical worldview, we are still free to assemble and free to proclaim the gospel through microphones in the broad daylight. And though I do believe we are currently experiencing the judgment of God in our country in many ways for forsaking his word and his lordship, we still enjoy many of the vestiges of his special blessing on this great, arduous, conflicted, unique in time and space in human history experiment in freedom that we call America. And the truth is, though it has become fashionable to condemn America, the mere fact that people are allowed to do that gives credence to the rarefied air that we enjoy in the timeline of history. So regardless of where we stand in the political and societal landscape, and in light of the differences that people bring to the table for whatever reason, we live in the light and default to love one another. And the only reason some of us can fly our flag high and some perhaps feel compelled to slap Uncle Sam in the face, all while enjoying the freedom to do so, is because we are all sitting on his shoulders and are reaping the fruit of much sacrifice from those who have come before us. And this is certainly not to idolize America at all. America is not the new Jerusalem. And barring a tremendous act of grace leading to repentance and revival, America could very well tear itself apart in our lifetime. Yet, while we know, as the Apostle Paul will say explicitly to the Philippians in chapter 3, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, yet it is good and right for us to receive with gratitude our earthly citizenship as well, knowing that God determines the periods and the boundaries of man's dwelling, and recognizing that we are called to steward well what we have been given by God. In the parable of the talents, the Lord Jesus makes clear that God proportions gifts as he pleases. He gives some one, he gives to others five, and even to others ten. And the Lord expects us to make good on what he's entrusted to us. That's the point of the parable. In proportion to the level of blessing he's given us, he wants to, to be faithful and to steward that well, whatever we've been given. And we have inherited a tremendous blessing from God by being born here. If we do a quick survey of all of history, it is impossible not to see that God in his providence has used this great experiment as a vehicle to further his kingdom in remarkable ways. And many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence saw this with wide-eyed and awestruck and reverent clarity. Let me give you two as an example. These are signers of the Declaration of Independence. Samuel Adams, he says, We have this day restored the sovereign, capital S, to whom all men ought to be ultimately obedient. 
He reigns in heaven, and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come, ultimately. And then Benjamin Rush, <clears throat> he said this. Now consider this. This is, this is somebody who signed the declaration. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm already shocked, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ prescribes the wisest rules for just conduct in every situation of life. Happy they are who are enabled to obey them in all situations. My only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon a cross. Nothing but his blood can wash away our sins. That's amazing. And after the war for independence was technically won, but the certainty of the nation's survival was still far from secure, then General George Washington, who would become this republic's first president, sent a letter to all the executives of the states. This is known as his circular letter to the states. Right before he stepped down from command, ironically, probably thinking he was now leaving public office, he wrote them a letter, and in it, he expressed his thoughts on how if the nation would succeed, perhaps how it could possibly do so. This was his parting wisdom to the executors of the, of the states. He said this, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have you in the state over which you preside in his holy protection, that he would incline the, that, that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to the government, to entertain a brotherly affection and a true love for one another, for their fellow citizens of this United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field. And finally, that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose all of us to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity and humility and temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion. And without a humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. It is good for us, friends, to remember the inheritance that we have received. Again, these men did not put their ultimate hope in the nation. But they knew that the purposes of God play out in the theater of this earth. So they lived in that tension of seeking to be faithful in the fight that they felt called by God to hear while knowing battles don't stay won, and that our blessing as a nation would remain only insofar as we remained under God's holy protection, as Washington called it. So my simple call to us here, my friends, is this. Let us receive with sober gratitude the lineage of faith that we have received in this rare experiment, while of course not idolizing or censoring its sins from history. And let us pray that God would turn the hearts of our leaders and of all the people back to the Lord and to his word. May there rise up a hundred more Benjamin Rushes who both participate in the public square and boldly proclaim the only true way of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ alone to wash away all of our sins and to make us citizens of that great kingdom that has no end. May it be. 
Now, as we turn again to Philippians, I'll go ahead and ask you to open your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 1, which we have camped out in for some time now. Philippians chapter 1. Over the next two weeks, we'll be in verses 18b through 26. And in these verses, we find the Apostle Paul also living with a tension between heaven and earth. As his life hangs in the very balance, as Paul stares down the barrel of possible martyrdom, understandably, his mind starts dwelling on the life to come. You can imagine that, right? He starts to think of actually coming face to face with Jesus Christ. Who was it that got hung? Who said, knowing you're going to be hung has a wonderful way of sobering the mind, right? We see this happening in Paul. That the idea of seeing Christ captures his attention. But then he thinks of his dear friends in the Philippian church and how he still has more to give to bless them. And so he's torn in these verses, as it were, between heaven and between earth. So I'll read the text in full now, and then we will get to work. This is Philippians chapter 1, starting halfway through verse 18, which is probably a, a fresh break for you in the text. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. For, for I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that's way better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of that, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, strengthen me and quicken your spirit in me to faithfully unfold your scriptures. Give us eager ears to hear and humble hearts to receive. Let us, let us see Christ for the glory of your name and for the generational joy of our people. Amen. Okay. So we begin our text today where we left off, and we are in this, what we can call a rejoicing hinge. So it, it, it's a bit strange how it's probably divided up in your Bible. It starts halfway through 18, but it begins a new section there. Now, of course, neither verses nor section breaks in Scripture were inspired or in, there in the original. So if we just start in this section without the rest of verse 18, we'd miss something absolutely essential, namely the, the repetition of rejoicing that we find in this verse. Repetition, of course, adds emphasis, 
But in this particular verse, it does far more than that. So here's verse 18 in its entirety, and then the first part of 19. You can read along with me if you have your text. He says, what then, in verse 18? And there he's speaking of those envious preachers who are trying to afflict him. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, looking back. And then here he says, yes. And I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So here, we see how Paul's trust in the total sovereignty and providence of God was so stabilizing, allowing him not to rejoice, just looking back seeing what God had done and saying, okay, that's good and I, I like that. But he's able to rejoice in both directions, both while looking back and while looking ahead amidst incredible uncertainty. As he looks back, he can see more clearly the good God was accomplishing. Last week, we called them the happy providences of his imprisonment. And he sees that and he rejoices in that. But today... As he looks forward with the eyes of faith, he does so because of his experience and because of the character of God with an expectation that God will do only what is best and wisest. That whatever happens, as Paul says, it will be for his deliverance. And he rejoices. And God wants us to be a people who can rejoice looking in both directions. But we also observed last week how this second rejoicing suggests that Paul is he's stealing himself. That is, he's, he's preaching to himself even as he writes this. Not just in that he repeats it, but in the way he repeats it. You can see that there, right? He says, I will rejoice looking at that. And then he says, yes, and I will rejoice, looking ahead. And having read the full passage, we can understand why he's speaking with such resolve. And it's because when he speaks of his deliverance in this situation, that could mean release or it could mean death. And no matter who you are, that is a harrowing prospect to face. Yet here, Paul does not allow his mind to spin off into anxious thoughts. He steals himself, and with conviction, he declares to the Philippians, and I believe to himself as well, yes, and I will rejoice. He preaches back to the anxieties that would have been very natural looking down the barrel of that gun. And he says, yeah, I rejoice when I see good things have happened, but I will rejoice because I know who God is, no matter what comes. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, uh, the great English preacher, once made this point. He was commenting on Psalm 42, where we see, David preaching to himself amidst great depression, and he says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact 
that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Now, somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, you have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. Now, David's soul had been repressing and crushing him. So he stands up and says, I love this. He says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you now. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand, and you have to address yourself and preach to yourself. And Paul, considering his possible and frightful execution, isn't listening to himself here. He is preaching. Yes, and I will rejoice. And then he goes on in the text to lay out in detail why he can rejoice. And here's one of the main reasons he's able to rejoice, while even considering the specter of death that is just around the corner. As I said, we'll we'll unearth more of this text next week. We'll be here for two weeks because there's so much richness. But here's what I want us to see primarily today. Paul is able to rejoice, even amidst an uncertain future, because for him... And for every Christian, his worst-case scenario is also, in the same moment, his best-case scenario. The reason Paul can rejoice amidst uncertainty is because his worst-case scenario is also his best-case scenario. Or to say it another way, physical death for the Christian. Physical death is the door into eternal life what Paul is stealing himself on. And because of that, and this is huge, Paul's emotional world is not held captive to a specific outcome. Even if everything goes wrong, humanly speaking, all that will do is hasten the day for the deepest longing of his soul. And Paul makes this explicit. As he weighs out the two possible deliverances before him, either either release or death. In verse 21, he says this glorious phrase, for to me to live is Christ. That is, I can do more for the Lord here. And to die is gain. And then down in verse 23, he says, my desire, that, that word literally means my deepest craving. My desire is to depart And to be with Christ, for that is far better. Back in 2017, I was hiking in Yosemite by myself. Not smart. And I had foolishly and inadvertently done the hike in reverse. uh, Meaning I parked at the top and then went down when I was fresh and it was early in the day. So that later in the day, salvation was four miles back straight up. And at this point, I was tired, and I had tweaked my right knee, and I had greatly underestimated the length of the hike. I would have run out of water were it not for a stream that came along my path. And I was in overall in a pretty miserable way. Two people stopped to ask, are you okay? Two. 
two people. <laughs> but here's the main thought that propelled me. I knew that at the top there was a shop, and this particular shop sold ice cream bars and Dr. Pepper. And so as I hobbled up the mountain, this is all true, this is what my mind was stayed on. And when I finally got there, gruelingly so, I received my inheritance, and it was as rich as the nectar of the gods, and then I passed out of my car for a couple hours. My mind was fixed for a while on my inheritance, and that is a ridiculous example. But it echoes a very important spiritual principle, which is made clear today. We are on a journey to glory. C.S. Lewis called it the high country. I love that phrase. And God has designed this redemptive pilgrimage in such a way that in order to stay productive, to stay encouraged, and to stay joyful, we must fix our eyes on the glory of what awaits when we get to the top. And we must know with clarity what that is. The Christian who is growing in spiritual sturdiness, who is growing in their ability to say convictionally and with sincerity, like the Apostle Paul, yes, and I will rejoice no matter what comes, is one who is keeping one eye on the plow and one eye on the horizon. And that's what I want for us. I, I want us to get our eyes higher up where Paul's were. I want us to be a people whose joy is not planted in the shallow topsoil of circumstance. But I want the roots of our joy to be planted in the rich and deep soil of the gospel and its eternal hope. So in the remainder of our time, we'll do this in two ways. First, I want to quickly see how Peter, John, and Jesus call us to this same thing, namely that we must keep our gaze in the direction of glory. And second, and in conclusion, we'll see more of what was in Paul's mind personally when he thought about death being gain. So that'll make sense in just a second. So first, casting our gaze towards glory. We'll look at two different texts. The first from the Apostle Peter. So if you have your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter 1, 13. Quickly, we'll be in there just for a moment. 1 Peter 1, 13. It says this. Peter writes, Therefore, so he had just been talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and our internal eternal inheritance. He says, therefore, in light of that gospel, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here it is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're honest, what are you hoping for most in life right now? What are you hoping for most? What consumes your thought life? Is it a better job? Is it better health? Is it less stress? Is it more pay? Is it to be married? Is it to have more personal freedom? Is it to have children, or is it to be empty-nested, perhaps? What does your mind go to when it is on idle? Sometimes you can tell this by what targeted ads 
come your way when you scroll. Now, none of these things are bad, but they go bad and are altogether unsatisfying if they become the main object of our hope. And that's why 1 Peter 13 exists. The apostle helps us. He admonishes us to set our hope fully on something that is sturdy and something that can't disappoint. Namely, to the outpouring of grace that you will receive when you see Jesus Christ. So yes, let's have good, godly ambitions now, but let them be hoped for in the brighter light of eternity. This will help keep us from idolatry and discontentment because when contrasted next to the glory of being with Christ for eternity, lesser hopes aren't easily mistaken for salvation. And notice what Peter calls it. Unbelievers, if they heard this, may scoff at this as wishful thinking. Peter says it's the exact opposite. Thinking on the grace to come when we see Christ is actually sober-mindedness for the Christian because it's actually true. It's when we forget about Christ. It's when we forget about our glorious trajectory that we are actually living in a delusion. There is nothing more true than the God whose name is I Am. Christ is ultimate reality, and we live in shadows now, and we see dimly now, but we will soon see fully. And Peter says, believing that is sobriety of mind, setting our minds on temporal things only or primarily is the delusion. Yet that is often our default. And friends, this is why getting in the Word every morning is so vital. For our spiritual health. Because scripture is God's smelling salt for waking us up again to real reality. The word of God is how we shake off the stupor morning by morning. It's how we prepare our minds to see what can't be seen with our eyes. And this takes intentionality, scripturally. Scripture read prayerfully and read humbly recasts our story back where it belongs in the grand story of redemptive history. And Peter says, not just think about that once a week or even once a day, but to set our hope fully on the grace to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament echoes this over and over again, of course, here in Philippians as well. But for the sake of time, I just want to highlight one other place. And this is Jesus himself on the night before his crucifixion, looking to comfort his disciples. And look how he comforts them. He says this in John 14, 1 through 3. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, which means they were troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. So according to Jesus, why should they not be troubled? What is the great consolation for his disciples, both those now and in us? It's that even as we are at work here, Jesus is also at work. Jesus is preparing a place for all who are his. Jesus is making ready. Jesus is in the process of bringing all things into submission to himself. And when the kingdom is ready, he will deliver it to his Father. And we will all be caught up in that together. Oh, what an amazing hope. So yes, Jesus and his apostles call us to think and to hope in light of eternity. And Paul sets us an example in Philippians today amidst much duress, humanly speaking. And he says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that for him he has come to a place that dying would be better for me now, he says. Now, how in Paul's mind is dying gain? That's the word he used. For me, to die is gain. I, I gain something by dying. Well, we just saw it in what Jesus said and also what Paul restates in Philippians because we will be with Christ. We will be with Christ forever. And friends, this is the best part of the good news. Through Christ's work on the cross, we are forgiven of our sins. And through his resurrection, our eternal life was secured. Life with Christ and all the redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth. And there is no end to the comfort this provides now. And I encourage us, let us think on this often. And as our believing family ages, let us help them keep this before them, that Christ awaits them just on the other side of the horizon. Let's read them the word of God that highlights these things and give them incredible hope. And let us tell our unbelieving friends and family that they could be done with the fear of death because God has made a way for them to live forever through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us pray for God to awaken faith in them and in us. So as Paul sits chained to a Roman guard, thinking on these things, purposing within himself to rejoice amidst much anxiety, Despite his present circumstances, he thinks on the life to come. And one's tempted to wonder what actually came into his mind about what this experience would actually be like. Well, in God's providence, we can make a pretty good guess by looking to something else he wrote. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, we see perhaps Paul's clearest articulation of the transformation that is to come when we see Jesus Christ. So I, I want to end the sermon by reading it. I, I want our redemptive imagination to be filled with the word of God because it is so glorious. So this will be 1 Corinthians verses 50, I believe, through 56. So hear the word of the Lord. Now again, remember, the reason Paul was inspired to write this was to encourage the church. So be encouraged in this. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor 
does the perishable inherit the imperishable? That is, you aren't ready for the kingdom as you are now in your frail body. A wardrobe change has to happen, and it does. This is verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. How? Our perishable perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory now? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or to say it another way, for me to live is Christ, but to die, it's gain. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we thank you for the hope that you have given us through your life and death, through your resurrection and your ascension. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on this. And let it cause our joy to grow strong and deep. And may we be healed deeply from from all the wounds and, and all the struggles and all the anxieties that cling so close as we think on life with you having been transfixed from mortal to immortal. Well dressed to enter into the eternal kingdom of God. We thank you that you have accomplished this for us. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.